Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So the Apostle Paul has written to Pastor Timothy and his churches. Right? It's likely that these letters were not just personal letters. They were letters to be read among the churches. And given him directions as to how to create and how to maintain order in the church. Timothy has been told to forbid certain men to teach heterodox doctrines, to use He's been told to use the law, but use it lawfully. He's been told to remember the fundamental gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In response to that good news, the Apostle Paul sings that doxology that we looked at last time, verse 17. And then we are back into the very practical matters of church order, uh, including Authority, ordination, ends church discipline. In verse 18, Paul begins with a sobering statement. This command I entrust to or set before you, Timothy, my son. What is coming will have some weight. And the apostle Paul is making sure both Timothy and the church understand the importance, the gravity of what is coming. Similar to when Jesus introduced statements with amen, amen, or truly, truly. And Paul further adds some weight by saying, Timothy, my son. The Apostle Paul is Timothy's spiritual father, the man that drew him into the ministry, right? That trained him in the work, that encouraged him to suffer for the gospel. And so Timothy's heart would be bound to Paul. And when Paul and when and when he read Paul referring to that relationship, my son, his mind and heart would sink into the command that Paul is about to put upon him. This is not just sentimental, though. Paul is claiming fatherly authority over his son in the faith. He, by that position, is giving him a command he expects to be fulfilled. Additionally, not simply claiming relationship with Timothy, Paul reminds him of something. He reminds him of some prophecies that were made concerning him. He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. In other words, do this because it accords with those prophecies made of your 
work and of you. It accords with that. What I'm about to tell you accords with those prophecies. So what is the Apostle Paul referring to here? Well, if we jump forward in this letter, we get this short vision into Timothy's past and is bumping up against prophecy. Uh, Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. In other words, Timothy received and learned by prophetic utterance a spiritual he learned about and received by prophetic utterance a spiritual gift during his ordination by the presbytery. That's how I take that. During the laying on of hands, that ordination. In 2 Timothy, Paul makes this event a bit more personal, but I think it's referring to the same event. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then this, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That, that mention of timidity that they have not been given by God is in the context of this mention of some gift that was given to Timothy through the laying on of Paul's hands, who I assume was one of, a num- one of the number of those presbyters who were laying hands upon Timothy. And the command from Paul to do something difficult comes with a reminder of this gift that cast out timidity. And that gift was given him at his ordination. I think it likely happened with Timothy just as it happened with Barnabas and Saul. Can I have your attention? I see a lot of eyes on other things other than the pulpit. And so I would, I, would like, I would like you to pay attention to the word of God preached. It's hard, I know. I'm not, I'm not telling you anything that isn't hard for me when I sit through a sermon. I'm just reminding you, please, this is the word of God and God may have something here for you. I think it likely happened with Timothy just as with Barnabas and Saul, which we read about in Acts 13. Acts 13, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, colon, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Very simple, isn't it? It's not like smoke and mirrors. It's not like tongues and crazy languages. It's just the Holy Spirit says, Set apart those two guys. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent him away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to 
Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So there we see prophetic utterance by the Holy Spirit and the laying on of hands and the task then of ministry following. It's exactly parallel to what's going on with Timothy and Paul and the presbyters here. What was it that Timothy received? Can we be more specific about this extraordinary gift? I'm not sure we can. Other than to say that this was a general call to the ministry, just like those brothers in Acts. Set apart for me for the work of ministry, these men. Is that enough um, for us to fit, you know, is that enough for us to fit it into this scheme? What comes or should come with the call to the ministry from God? What should come with the call to the ministry from God? Confidence? Ability? Authority? Yes, all those things. Topics which pop up throughout this letter to Timothy, right? That's what, that's what these letters are all about. We've seen, you know, we, we've seen too many movies involving Jedis, haven't we? You know, one minute they can't do anything, and the next minute Yoda, the guru, says something, and they can lift, you know, the thing out of the swamp. So we think that this gift that Timothy received must be more than a general call. So boring. You know? A general equipping from God to lead the church. It must be the gift of healing. Right? But we never see that. It must be the gift of telling the future, but we never see that. It must be the gift of tongues, but we have no evidence of that. It must be the gift of miracles, but we have no evidence that Timothy ever did any miracles, but, but what of those gifts like discernment and courage and zeal and teaching and leadership and preaching and administration and compassion and, and prayer? Are those unnecessary? Are they boring? Not useful? Well, it may be be because of our lack of understanding of the rigors of of the calling of the ministry that we discount those gifts. But I tell you, a lack of those gifts in a man and a corresponding lack of appreciation of those gifts by the congregation leads to a breakdown in the proper functioning of a church eventually. Even with the proper calling, the work of the ministry is grueling. Without a proper calling, it's impossible. Ordination after proper examination confers both authority and a burden is placed upon a man in ordination. And that is an extraordinary gift from God. He, he, I mean, God could have used angels to preach. He could have wowed us with angelic beings who led us in worship. But instead he gave us ordinary men, but he didn't just give us ordinary men, he gave us ordained men. Ordinary men with authority and weight of ordination upon them. 
Paul tells Timothy to remember that laying on of hands. To remember God's blessing in it. To remember what it meant and the work it gave him the authority to undertake. I remember my ordination in Toledo, Ohio. November 21st, 2004. uh, Surrounded by the specific men who had trained me for the ministry. The session of Christ the Word PCA and other men unknown to me, but representatives from the Presbytery, the Great Lakes Presbytery, I bowed to my knees, and these men pressed down on my shoulders as hard as they possibly could. They leaned into it. I was fatigued by the time that my ordination ended. Um, I, was, I was praying that the man who was praying would stop praying. but but the weight I don't know if they were pressing or not or whether it was just God impressing upon me the weights of the task that that was ahead but it's um, it's the weight of the hands that I remember the most and the tears began to flow down my cheek as I thought about the fact that I a wicked sinner was being ordained by the laying on of the presbytery for God's work And there was nothing more I wanted, and there was nothing more that I dreaded. But it was God's call that filled me with awe and set me about the work of ministry. And it's it's God's supply of strength that I must have now to continue it. So, you know, so as I read Paul speaking to Timothy in this way, It just sobers me up, right? It's Paul's, Paul's call, calling Timothy's attention. He is sobering up Timothy. To think of the weight of those hands symbolizing the weight of the ministry, but also he's encouraging Timothy. It was God's call on you. It was God's call on you. I think we should have more of these reminders of ordination. Paul did so numerous times in the letters to Timothy, and it served to get Timothy to once again go up into battle again and again. That is precisely what Paul says, that by these prophecies previously made concerning you, those prophecies that distinguished you for this calling, that by them you fight the good fight. Fight on, man. Every time a battle against false teachers or against scoffers in the church or against rebels who desire to go their own way, every time pastors and elders have to think back upon God's calling them, they they, they have to think back upon God's calling them to that work. Leave that off and the work becomes miserable. It It becomes impossible. It becomes unrelenting and depressing. It's distressing. Our hero Elijah forgot his calling. Didn't he? Jezebel threatens him. That wicked wench threatens him. And the prophet of God goes scampering away as a dead man. 
Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. For I am not better than my father's. And it took merely the ministry of the angels and the command of the Lord to remind Elijah of the battle, of the warfare that he was called to, to be a prophet of God among his nation. And part of the weight of that is this, that there was not a time when he was not to be a prophet. This was not a nine-to-five job. He carried about with him the weight of ordination and the cares of the ministry and the needs and the sins of the people. And Timothy, like all pastors since Timothy, have needed to be reminded of the calling that God has placed upon them in their lives. And you know when they need it most. They need it most when a Hymenaeus or Alexander rise up after you have just dealt with a case of adultery or incest or rebellion. Which came on the heels of dealing with drunkenness. Which came on the heels of dealing with somebody's conflict in their family. Which came on the heels of figuring out a divorce. And who's in the right or who's not. Or how to bring reconciliation in this or that. Which came right on the heels and simultaneously with, with just rampant sexual sin in the young men of the church. And so every pastor realizes the temptation there is to desert his post. And so many people tell, the, tell their pastors to desert their post. They do so by telling him he's being heavy-handed in his approach to discipline. As if he wants to do any of it. They, they do so by telling him he's being unkind. They do so by telling him that no church will ever grow if we practice church discipline. They do so by telling him that so-and-so should be an elder, so-and-so should not be an elder, and it's unclear whether this man even has faith that they're suggesting to you. But he presents well, and he's nice, and he would compliment you, Pastor. They do so when instead of humbly receiving some something from the word preached, they rather just take you to task for your approach to the passage and your understanding of so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. They do so by subtly letting you know that they can't really invite their family and friends to our church because, you know, something 
crazy pastor says might offend. And the pastor swimming in that context has his own temptations to abandon his post. As a watchman on the wall, as it's put in the book of Ezekiel. And Paul tells Timothy, get up again. Get up again. Get up. You are no ordinary man. You're an ordained man. Take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Preach in season and out of season, he tells Timothy. Rebuke, exhort, train in righteousness, teach. This calling you have is from God. The laying on the hands is by fathers in the faith, and the purpose is the purification of the very son, son's bride, the church. What you do is for the salvation of the nations. Get up. Fight again. Pick your head up off the pillow. You are the man for the task. Replacements will come at some point. You'll be taken off the front line to heal. But for now, Timothy, you're in the fight. You're in it. And so, this is, the, this is Paul's band of brothers speech for Timothy. You know, and, and I hate to quote Shakespeare. It's so annoying, but um, it's good. Shakespeare wrote these lines giving words to uh, this, this scene, Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt. The weary troops before Henry are, are facing their, their death. And he says, Shakespeare puts these words into the King Henry's mouth. He says, he that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. The story shall be the good, shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin, Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. But he, ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now in bed, shall think themselves accursed, they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap. While Zenny speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. I mean, if you're, if you're biologically male and that doesn't put fire in your gut, I don't know what to tell you. 
If you're biologically male and these words of the inspired word of God from Paul to Timothy don't put fire in your gut, I don't know what to tell you. That, that little poem that I just read was a, was a poetic tellum, telling of a vainly raging nation overtaking another vainly raging nation, the conflict between England and, and France, both just drops in the bucket. But the, the battle Paul and Timothy are engaged in, the battle that you and I as members of the church militant are engaged in, is the singular battle that has raged all through the histories of the world. The war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The war between the whore, Babylon, and the very Son of God. He who is faithful and true. And there, in in Ephesus, is this little skirmish in that one big warfare. To fight that good fight, note that Paul says Timothy must be careful to do a few things. He must, be, he must keep faith and a good conscience. Faith in God and a conscience not smeared with evil deeds. Outward and inward. Faith believing that God is all-powerful, perfectly executing His plan in this world. A good conscience being aware that you are fighting your sins, looking for the escape that God provides from temptation, and remembering that the gaze of God is always upon you. He sees all that you do. He hears and knows all that you think. And being able to delight in that fact. That's a good conscience. Delighting that God knows every one of your thoughts. Faith for the forgiveness of sins, a good conscience bearing out the fact that your faith is producing obedience. A man in that state can faithfully engage in the battle. A man without faith or with a bad conscience is worthless in the battle. Man or woman that is secretly committing adultery and yet professing faith in Jesus Christ and faithfully attending church is not fit for the battle. A woman that indulges in pornography... Yes, women do that. And yet leads the women's Bible study is not fit for battle. A pastor or elder whose home is disordered and yet faithfully attends every elder board meeting will not, is not fit for battle. A young man who cheats and lies his way through situations with his siblings and his friends and then requests to come to the Lord's table is not fit to enter the battle. A woman that uses her mouth to spew out gossip all under the guise of very concerned and sings songs with her hands raised in the air is not fit for the battle. Faith in God and a good conscience, two sides of a single coin, a coin that must be carried in the pocket of all those who are called into the fray. Reject one or the other of those and you reject both. Reject faith in God and you will establish your own righteousness With whatever crowd you run in, reject a good conscience and eventually the commands of God, the standards of the household of God, you will hate. They'll just become loathsome burdens to you. Reject faith, destroy your conscience, and the end result is nothing less than dramatic shipwreck. 
shipwreck. You're no more floating in that vessel. You're cast into the sea, hoping on the the mercy of God. Calvin writes, let us learn that, let us learn then, that our life is but a kind of navigation and sailing, which we make by water, so that in the meantime we are subject to many storms and tempests. Seeing this is so, what will become of us if we do not have a good boat and are not well guided? We will sink. The tempest will drown us at every instant. And this is what St. Paul meant, showing that all who think they can play with God will in the end suffer a horrible vengeance since they have not kept this inestimable treasure of faith. But when God has enlightened them and shown himself to them and given them hope of salvation, they cast it into the wind. They play with it as with a game, whereas they should have hidden this treasure in a good conscience and withdrawn themselves, being not carried away by the vanities of this world, to be tossed this way and that way with every wind, seeing then that they have not kept themselves so well locked up. God punishes them for being so light. And why is this so? They drown themselves. They are, as it were, in the midst of the sea, and God allows a tempest to rise and swallow them up suddenly, as indeed they well deserve. Thus, we see what St. Paul's meaning is and how we may make our profit of this text. It remains that every one of us imprint this doctrine in his heart, and remember it often. As an example of those who did not regard the faith, the teaching of the church, and the necessity of a good conscience, Paul now names names. Paul names names. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Forever immortalized in Scripture, as men who rejected the faith and defiled their conscience. Were they taught not to blaspheme? Did they repent? We don't know. But do not let their example, therefore, have no effect upon you. Right? Indulge a sin. Serve an idol. And God, being a jealous God, will allow you to go that way. Thus, as Martin Luther said, the life of the Christian is to be one of continual repentance. Continual repentance. Constant repentance. Repentance marks the life of the Christian, not absence of sin. Repentance marks the life of the Christian. Not the absence of sin, but the hatred and repentance for sin. The difference between a Christian and an unbeliever is not that the former does not sin and the latter sins. No, it's that the Christian repents and the unbeliever will never repent, refuses to repent. I mean, there are so many controversies these days when if 
If a pastor exercises discernment like is exampled for us by the Apostle Paul, you know what happens to pastors who exercise discernment like the Apostle Paul does here? They will be destroyed and cast out of the pulpit very quickly. And if you warn sheep that so-and-so is a false teacher, that so-and-so is a wicked man that you should stay away from, you will get a repeated litany that that is not your place to call out that man. Have you spoken to him? Have you followed the, the, the I mean, he's, he's preaching this stuff publicly. It's so obviously blasphemous, denying the doctrine of hell, right? Playing, you know, trying to overturn all of Scripture's commands regarding homosexuality. And you warn the sheep and you say, sheep, don't listen to that voice. It's not the voice of Jesus Christ. And you will be taken down. Paul calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander. Why does he do that? Why does Paul call out Hymenaeus and Alexander? Because Hymenaeus and Alexander have been going around teaching his precious flock that the resurrection has already happened. That's, that's heresy. And it's destructive. He calls them out in the letter and says, cast them out. This is not the only place this happens time and time again. Oh, we get, we, you know, here it is. Here's the example. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Hymenaeus and Alexander, maybe they had wives, maybe they had kids, you know, maybe, maybe they had families, maybe they had a business to run. I mean, how, Paul, how could you smear them like this? Because Paul cared about the purity of, of the church. He cared about the sheep. He cared about the name of God not being blasphemed. I'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Father, we, you have, in, in your providence, you have You've made it so that we're coming to your table on this day where we've heard the Holy Spirit commend to us a good conscience. And we know that part of coming to this table is self-examination. And so I pray, Father, that we would have done that work, that we would have bowed our knees before you and, and confessed our sins and 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 done that work. I pray that we would have done the work of reconciling with others that we need to reconcile with. But Father, I pray that we would continue through our, our lives to, to hate the sin that so easily entangles us. And that we would protect a good conscience. That we would delight in a good conscience. That we would delight in a good conscience as it, as it allows us to freely pray to you, freely serve, to freely continue on when we'd rather check out. Oh, Father, the power of faith, the power of a good conscience. Lord, cleanse us from unrighteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.